Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10-9 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Bird's Eye View edition. It's Friday, March 18th, and I'm Miriam Ibrahim, your Press Gallery host and a legislature reporter for the Journal. Joining me in the newsroom studio today are Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Miss Miriam. And appearing for the first time on our podcast, education reporter Janet French. Greetings. Welcome, and thank you all for joining me this week. Alberta MLAs have another week of spring session under their belt, and listeners, it was another mm, dynamic week. Some out-of-context quotes here, a flip of the bird there. We'll take a look back as MLAs prepare now for their two-week break, and parties make their final push for votes ahead of the Calgary Greenway by-election, which is on Tuesday. Then we'll devote some time to the legacy of Leilani Muir, an Alberta woman who made history with her lawsuit against the government in the 90s for its forced sterilization program, a dark chapter in this province's history. But first this week, the Edmonton Catholic School Board released its LGBT policy and approved it at a board meeting, despite some concerns from community advocates. Now, this is in response to Education Minister David Egan's expectation that all 61 school boards in the province submit a policy to protect gender-diverse students and staff across Alberta. Janet, take our listeners through some of the background here. The Education, education Minister released his policy guidelines quite a while ago. So, so what is it he's expecting from boards? Well, he is expecting something that explicitly protects lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, two-spirited, queer and questioning students and staff and their families or, you know, visitors to the schools. So Egan wants their policies to reflect changes to the law that have been passed over the last year. Uh, One of them would include updates to the Alberta Human Rights Act uh, to protect gender diversity. And uh, the other would be the law to introduce a requirement to form a gay-straight alliance or human rights club when a student requests one in a school. Uh, Right, that's the Bill 10 fight that we all remember from from last year. The other one uh, is that schools now have to have an updated or new code of conduct for students, and that must also explicitly say you can't bully gay, queer, questioning, two-spirited, bisexual, transgender students or staff okay and and do the guidelines explicitly say those use those terms and and are they i'm sort of trying to get a sense of what it is that the boards have to do here with these guidelines are these hard and fast guidelines or can they sort of 
you mold them. Well, that's that's sort of the the issue is that there's a policy requirement and then there's guidelines, and um, the guidelines are a guide, optional. Uh, but the policy requirements are he's being very not prescriptive <laughs> so um the some of some school boards already have policies and so some school boards will be updating sort of safe and caring school policies to reflect uh to use language that's more specific to lgbtq people uh, others will have to create new safe school policies from scratch. But like I said, he's being really not specific about his prescription because each school board has a different starting point. Now, the guidelines, mm. though, are to guide them are optional uh, or, you know, each board will be taking, it seems, what they want from those guidelines or leaving what they want. Paula, this sounds like a recipe for confusion. I mean, mean, we've talked about this before. The guidelines are fascinating. They were based on work that was done by school boards in Ontario and the Nova Scotia uh, school system. And they are, I think, in fashion, you'd call it fashion forward. I think the guidelines are well ahead of where a lot of rural school divisions are. The guidelines call for things like not using... Uh, traditional male and female pronouns if students want to be called they or they uh, they say you know you shouldn't refer to mothers and fathers because we should talk about parents and guardians uh, they talk about you know being able to play on sports teams at, at, at whichever gender the child identifies these are things that are concepts that maybe some some school boards are more prepared to grapple with than others, shall we say. And I also don't think that the guidelines gave a lot of thought. The diversity of Alberta's school system, which doesn't just include Catholic schools, but also in our public school system, includes um, uh, schools that are part of the Christian reform movement, which also includes Hutterite schools, Mennonite schools. Mm. So to say that every school board has to be in alignment with this is tricky enough at the best of times. Janet, you were at the meeting this week um, and, and sort of got to watch the discussion unfold over how this policy came to be and 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 who's in favor and who's not tell us a little bit about how that played out okay well uh my understanding i wasn't actually at the previous meetings the meetings there have been uh shall we say fraught with the emotion um as well as uh, a lot of uh divisiveness in in how how the issues are being debated uh shouting crying uh, people being ejected from meetings and being accused of bullying i mean there were there were it's obviously a really serious issue so you got a taste of it obviously this week about sort of how this is playing out on that on that board this one was more reserved or okay. calm than they have than had you a, an administrator or like a consultant or of some sort appointed i can't remember the term exactly the education minister used facilitator facilitator I think. yeah one of those Lion government speak be. yeah <laughs> uh, terms but uh, anyway continue Jan- Janet. there's lions have been slightly tamed um <laughs> but they they didn't waver from their perspectives it was definitely a very clear five to two split so chair marilyn bergstra who after all this had to get up and defend this policy to a scrum full of reporters uh, was quite passionately not in favor of this policy. She uh, believes that 
evidence says a trans a transgender specific policy or an LGBTQ specific policy would be far better to protect students. And this policy is very general. It it starts off talking about how Catholic teachings believe that we respect everyone. You would never discriminate it, uh, against anybody based on anything that would make them different. So it's certainly what what sets the Edmonton Catholic policy say apart from the Edmonton public policy is Edmonton Public Schools has a very specific policy and a set of regulations that are just protecting LGBTQ students. So that was one of the main divisive issues is does the Edmonton Catholic School Board need a policy specific a to LGBTQ? Yeah, standalone, yeah. exactly. So theirs is not. It's very high level, broad we love everyone, we protect everyone. And so... It's not very long either, is it? No, but you know, if you look at Edmonton Publix, which is sort of the model that that I think Egan wants people to look at, is their board policy is not that long either. It's their administrative regulations or procedures that really get into the nitty gritty. But you can't write the regulations without the approved policy. So we have yet to see what their regulations will look like. So Patricia Grell, who's the other person who said she would not vote in favor of this policy, said, well... You know, again, it's way too broad, and I, she fears, I, Patricia Girl, I being Patricia Girl, fear <laughs> that uh, if we're too vague in our overarching policy, then our regulations will also be too vague, and then that those will not protect the students that, um, you know, Egan is really trying to protect with this directive. So I was sort of thinking, you know, in a couple of weeks or in a week now, I guess, this deadline is going to come and pass, and, and, and pretty soon after that, we're going to see what these these boards submitted, what these policies look like. I'm starting to think that we're going to just see bits and pieces, drafts, and then a lot of boards being sort of bogged down in the, the procedure of whatever comes next, the regulation, or the not having submitted a policy at all. This is a very difficult high wire for any education minister to walk because school boards in this province still have a fair degree of autonomy. And so, you know, it's one thing for Egan to say, we're going to let the boards do this on a board by board basis based on the needs of that board. On the other hand, human rights are the same for everyone. And so it would be very difficult to say, you know, it's one thing for a board to have a different policy about, you know, a a particular kind of pedagogy pedagogical philosophy it's a different thing for a board to say well you know in this region we're not quite ready to not discriminate against trans kids I don't think it's enough for the Catholic boards to say we promise to be nice to everybody because the problem is of course you don't want to discriminate against anybody but traditionally in Western society trans and queer kids have faced a particular kind of discrimination The other problem is that Catholic boards in this province have hiring policies that allow them to discriminate against teachers who do not conform with Catholic teaching. Is Egan going to challenge that and say that Catholic boards have to hire out gay teachers, have to hire trans teachers? Well, we've seen we human, don't know we've yet. seen human rights challenges though on that very topic. Graham, I just want to bring you in really quickly here at the end of this discussion. It it sounds like the education minister is going to have a political battle and it seems like it's it's going to be mirroring in some ways some of the challenges that the government had when bill 10 was a question how careful yeah, when, yeah when that was jim prentice's government. exactly mm-hmm. and i mean here we have an ndp government where i mean obviously their base is in favor of these kinds of things how careful does he have to be sort of moving forward to not alienate though uh, people in, in rural Alberta who, who, who maybe are not so in favor to of To me, this. there's also parallels here with Bill 6. 
This is the government taking what it believes is a, a really uh, good stand on an issue. It's saying we're doing the right thing. Bill 6 with the farm safety bill, you know, that was the one where they got in trouble with farmers for not talking to them before they brought in the bill that would actually um, protect the rights of paid farm workers. Mm -hmm. And here we got the same thing where they're protecting um, sexual minorities in schools. And they really feel this is the right thing to do. It's ideologically driven in a lot of ways, but they feel that they're on the side of the angels on this. And the problem is they're running into problems because they're not dealing with rural issues. And you get the impression, of course, even though the NDP does have rural MLAs, they're very much a urban pro, um, party yeah. driven by um, urban uh, ethos, urban culture, and they're not really paying attention, don't really understand uh, what's happening in rural Alberta, or they're dismissing it at their own peril. So, Janet, j before we free you from our podcast scripts, Janet, of course, has other reporter duties to get back to, but I, I do want to just sort of get a sense from you of having now looked at this Catholic school school policy, sort of, and maybe we can sort of take it as a, a little a case study. Uh, is, is this something that's going to satisfy Egan? Only Egan knows. And <laughs> 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 maybe that should be on a bumper sticker. Only Egan knows. Uh, it. He's got 61 policies to go through. I'm not. I don't. I don't think we're going to see uh, a ruling or you know decision or feedback on this for months, probably. Uh, I'm sure. Obviously, he's already taken a special interest in this case, given the the tenor of the debate around it. Uh, but uh, even Marilyn Bergstra, the the chair, she won't speculate on whether he's going to approve this or not. Even though she voted against Even, it. She voted against it, uh, but then she had to stand up and defend it. <laughs> and she, you know, we asked her, is Egan going to accept this? And she just said, if he doesn't, we'll work with him to make it work. Right. Well, <laughs> we will stay tuned for this. I'm sure uh, we've talked about it already lots, and we will be again in the future. Janet, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, I want to switch gears a bit now to talk about the legislative session so far. Uh, it's sort of where we took the inspiration for our episode name this week. We uh, just wrapped up the first two weeks, and um, I sort of think Nathan Cooper, the Wild Rose MLA, was right way back uh, when session started when he said that he guessed the first two weeks would be pretty uneventful legislation-wise because, of course, the by-election is coming up and no one wants to rock the vote. Graham, we've seen some uh, colorful language in the House, though, that's for sure. Um, and, and one NDP MLA in particular sort of crossed the line from colorful language into colorful hand gestures, shall we say. What did Calgary MLA Michael Connolly do, Graham? He flipped the bird. He <laughs> gave the middle finger to the wild rose, and it was last week. What possibly could have motivated somebody already to be so angry to be flipping the bird? But the thing is, you know, this is speaks to... Um, the NDP being a new government, not only a new government, you've got a lot of, well, of the 54 who were elected last year, only four were incumbent MLAs in opposition, and the other 50 are brand new to politics. None have been in government. And for years, the NDP was used to, uh, you know, attacking the government. All of a sudden, they are the government. They're being attacked, and it's relentless in the House. And Michael Connolly is, um, you know, he's a young uh, inexperienced uh, rookie MLA who got frustrated last week, you know, the attacks from the, the wild rose, and he flipped the bird. But the thing is, that's one thing to be um, frustrated and new to politics and a bit immature, 
you flip the bird as inappropriate, and then you're actually called on it that day, and what do you do? You lie about you it. You lie about it. That That's always. That is worser. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's one thing to make a mistake in politics. When you start lying about it, then it becomes this quantum leap. And because so, it's not like there aren't witnesses, including uh, including, including the, the, the legislature a, officers, the sergeant and also the Hansard, um, which was was really great because you know he stood up and had to apologize, you know, to say you know I made an inappropriate gesture. And uh, my initial apology didn't cut it because it was recorded verbatim, his denying having ever done it. It's really bad when there's proof of your lying in black and white. <laughs> well, and, well, the thing is, we had the sergeant at arms said, yeah, I saw this happen. So, yeah, so he, he denied it last week and then had to apologize. What actually happened behind the scenes was the Wild Rose called up Brian Mason and said, look, your guy has to apologize or we'll make this into a point of privilege. So it won't just be an apology. It's going to be the chair the speaker ruling against the government, which is rare, but it happens. Yeah. So uh, he was forced to stand up and apologize. But even then, the media tried to to get him to explain what he had done, and he couldn't explain it. He he didn't want to explain it. He kind of gave a a lame excuse to why he did it. So this looks bad. It is, as I said, Initially, you're a brand new government, you're a brand new MLA, you can be forgiven some mistakes, but you do not lie about it in the floor of the assembly. Now, let us, let us recall that the uh, fine Alberta tradition of flipping the bird is a, is a venerable one here, and that we once had <laughs> one a honored minis- by premiers. We once had a minister of the environment who subsequently became premier, who, were, were you there, Graham? I was there. And Ralph Klein I was uh, there. Made, made the, the middle finger salute. <laughs> Is that a hearing regarding uh, Alpac? It was a uh, Alberta Pacific uh, forestry products um, dealing with environmental impacts of uh, forestry plants, and he flipped the bird. But he did it wasn't on the floor of the assembly, and he did it quite proudly. Yeah, and, and, and there, there, there is a lot of photographic oh, yeah, evidence. I think everybody's so, seen that. Photo. So you know, it's not that we are a bunch of Victorian spinsters who have never seen the third digit of the hand like definitely i've never even swore once but but you know really this is you know i was going to say something about my 10 year old nephew who's in fifth grade and this is fifth grade behavior but in fact my jacob would never behave like that (laughs) so i mean truly i mean this is not this is not elementary school playground time this is the floor of the alberta legislature and goodness knows i am not the queen of decorum in the legislature i actually think it's good when they get a bit feisty and heckly but you know grow up and you know and once you make a mistake own it and you know okay we're coming up to the one year anniversary there are a finite number of times we can say oh they're in you government mm-hmm. full of rookies yeah i think people you are know? getting pretty tired of that excuse and i think they're they're not willing to make it for the government anymore even if they are sympathetic um we also saw this week i mean it seemed sort of like there was a bit of the, the petty politics sort of going on in the legislature this week um, we saw Deputy Premier Sarah Hoffman stand up and, and sort of call out Wild Rose MLA Leela here, who during her sort of response to the speech from the throne was talking about the, um, in the context of, and I really actually do believe that this was the context having gone back and read her Hansard uh, remarks, um, in the context of sort of the, the whole um, uh, government investment programs and, and the concept of government picking winners and losers. And I think what she was trying to do maybe was quote Ted Morton, um, who has, has said before, you know, governments are great at picking, uh, governments aren't great at picking the winners and the losers are really good at picking government. But Sarah Hoffman painted it in a different way. Graham, what did she say? Yeah. So this is 
on the heels of the NDP being embarrassed by Michael Connolly had to apologize and admit it. So they thought, aha, we've got the wild rose now, uh, calling Albertans losers. But you're right. The context of the wild rose debate that day from um, Leela Ahir was governments pick are really bad at picking winners and losers. Economically. Exactly. Economically with funding and with investment. Funding. Whereas losing companies desperate for, for money are very good at picking a government that will give them money. So losers pin, can pick governments. But so Sarah Hoffman had a scrum in the hallways of the legislature outside the assembly to say, aha, the Wild Rose is calling Albertans losers for electing us. So losers choose governments. And, and I think for people who, when they don't see it in context, that they, they believe it. Right. And I think this, though, this was the government getting overly enthusiastic, hoping to slam down the Wild Rose, sort of a tit for tat. You know, you embarrassed us. Well, actually, the NDP actually embarrassed itself through Michael Connolly. And then the government's trying to embarrass the, um, the Wild Rose. The thing is, though, we went there. We covered it, and one of the questions from Darcy Henton was, wasn't this a, a quote from Ted Morton saying that companies, losing companies, are good at picking uh, governments? And Hoffman just kept on with her talking notes. The thing is, nobody covered that news conference. No one did a story on Sarah Hoffman accusing the Wild Rose of denigrating uh, Albertans, because I think the reporters, journalists, all saw it for the context. Yeah, once we did a little bit I of mean, reading, I mean, it, I mean, it I think Ahir didn't. She, it, she was a little bit clumsy with yeah, how she the, used that and quote. And the trouble is, Ted, qu- quoting a Ted Morton a- aphorism is a dangerous strategy. Ted Morton <laughs> could get away with saying those things because he had an IQ of about 190 and he didn't care who on earth he made angry. So, you know, when he said it, it was wickedly, bleakly funny. If you don't actually have his whip-like delivery, it, it doesn't work. And so, you know... I, my advice to rookie Wildrose MLAs is don't be quoting from the book of Morton because unless you're, <laughs> you know, I, I yep. knew Ted Morton. You're not Ted Morton. If you can't, if you can't say it the way Ted Morton would say it, your best. Think of your to. own thing to say. Yeah. And this does show, though, you know, we're, the NDP, of course, are, are new, brand new MLAs. But then, of course, most of the Wild Rosers are brand new That's as well. That's exactly right. Which is interesting to watch how sometimes they kind of flail on both sides in the House. And you have a speaker who's still learning this job. He's <laughs> brand new to politics, too. He is a referee in a, a game where no one's really played it before and no one really knows the rules. So the speaker has to constantly... Uh, it's like my, when my niece plays soccer because <laughs> she, like, right. runs away from the ball and, like... <laughs> picks dandelions for like a couple of minutes like she's totally clueless as, as the rest of the kids on the team are and they've just painted that picture Graham so what have we achieved so well, far I thought it was interesting bill for this week this is the essential services bill and this was something that they had to address because of the Supreme Court made a decision last year saying that governments like Alberta for example in the 70s said that all public sector workers cannot strike period the courts have said no 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 it's got it backwards everybody has the right to strike unless the uh, through negotiations, agree to give that right up and be declared an essential service. So this week, um, Alberta is the second last province to actually bring this kind of law mm-hmm. in to deal with uh, negotiating the the uh, uh, who should actually be an essential service. Uh, in a nutshell, it means police and firefighters have actually voluntarily said, we are essential, we will not have the right to strike, mandatory arbitration is fine with us. But all the other public sector workers, including nurses, uh, who right now cannot strike, 
um, will be given the right to strike. But what's going to happen is they will sit down with their employer, Alberta Health Services, of course, an arm of the government, um, so-called arm's length arm of the government. Um, they will then determine during a strike or a lockout which nurses will be deemed essential, that they must go to work. So hospitals will not all shut down, but there will be enough nurses in theory to go on strike and actually create a strike. So this is uh, Bill 4. That to me was an important piece that they had to do. This wasn't, by the way, the NDP saying we're going to mess around with the labor code. They had to do this because of the Supreme Court decision. And of course, having said that they have to do it because of the Supreme Court decision, they also have to do it because they're the NDP. I mean, how could they of all parties not provide fair labor standards? And, you know, and there's an irony here because under the conservative government, when nurses didn't have the right to strike, guess what? They struck anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then yeah. they had they had illegal walkouts, which were in some ways much more disturbing to the whole equilibrium of the healthcare system. It might actually be that this system, which will prevent illegal strikes, might actually keep everybody safer. Because I think we can pretty much all agree that if the nurses all walk out, that's a bad thing. I mean, you could you know some some workers are more essential than others. And, yeah. and so quickly, uh, teachers. Mm -hmm. People ask me about teachers. Teachers have had the right to strike this does not affect them right okay. this this doesn't change anything doesn't for change teachers. anything for teachers well uh, i mean we're obviously gonna have to wait and see how this plays out with negotiations it's always an interesting sort of dance to watch as as you know big public sector uh, workers go into into negotiations with the government and now it's a completely changed landscape um but before we do wrap up, I did want to devo devote some time to talking about, as Graham described her in his really moving column this week, uh, unlikely hero, Leilani Muir, who uh, also in her later years came to be known as Leilani O'Malley because she changed her name. Uh, we're going to refer to her by the name that we think Albertans will recognize her by most. Um, she died last weekend at the age of 71. Graham, you wrote in your column this week that her story was the only one that ever made you truly furious in all your years. Yeah, and the thing is, I was on CBC this week talking about it. I was actually getting angry again talking about what had happened. And the context I put it in was that she won the um, court challenge, $740,000 in 1996. 1997, um, when the lawsuits began, began piling up against the government, I went on a a tour across the country with uh, Sean Butts, who's actually a camera person recording this this morning. We traveled the country talking to people who were suing the government, those who were sterilization victims, talking about their lives and how it had been shattered by the government eugenics laws that came in 1928. And it went through all the 20s and 30s when other jurisdictions in the world, including Nazi Germany, were using eugenics to sterilize those deemed to be unfit. Of course, Germany lost the war. Other countries saw what had happened. Germany said, my goodness, eugenics is really an evil thing. Let's scrap our laws. But Alberta kept on pushing through. In fact, they enlarged the scope of the law twice, uh, once during the Second World War, to sterilize more people, make it easier to sterilize people. And they went through until 1972, after the PCs had become into power, they, uh, they scrapped that law. Anyway, so you fast forward. So Lelani Muir sues the government, wins 1996, 1997. The lawsuits start piling up. 1998, Ralph Klein stands up on the floor of the assembly and says we're bringing in a, an act to restrict the rights of those victims to sue because the government was going to lose all these 800 and some odd lawsuits thinking it's going to cost us a fortune. Let's just bring in an notwithstanding clause and stomp on their constitutional rights and not let them sue us. And Pam Barrett, the NDP, stood up and did an uh, eloquent 
just evisceration of Klein and that law. And Klein the next day scrapped the law. He realized, wow. you know, and you don't see that kind of reaction yeah. to to political rhetoric yeah. or oratory in in the legislature. And I have I have to say, I mean, Pam Barrett deserves a lot of the credit, but I think. Graham is being unduly modest. He deserves some of the credit. And our former editor-in-chief, Murdoch Davis, who wrote one of the most blistering editorials this newspaper has ever run. Uh, I think Murdoch went on and, and won a National Newspaper Award for that editorial. I mean, this newspaper also took a really important leadership role in fighting, I mean, fighting it was a grotesque idea to use the notwithstanding clause to take the legal charter rights away from the most vulnerable community of people imaginable. And I, I think what was absolutely fascinating about all of the work that Graham and Sean did on this file was to demonstrate the capricious way in which the eugenics laws were enforced. Many of the people who were forcibly sterilized were not I mean, they were not actually disabled. Sometimes they didn't speak English as a first language, so they didn't do well on their IQ tests. Sometimes uh, the law seemed to have been very capriciously applied so that if you were Aboriginal or an immigrant, you were much more likely to be victimized. If you had rotten parents who had abused you and abandoned you, where you were much more likely to be affected by this. Lorraine Bigelow, we met her. She's in Ontario. She had moved to Ontario to be with some family. Uh, she had a birth defect. She had, had no opposable thumbs. She had fingers that were fused together. They took her to the hospital, and uh, they tried to fix her hands. Well, they couldn't, but they thought, they thought we're not going to pass on this birth defect to generations, so we're going to—so they sterilized her. They called her mentally defective, but that was—but even then, the courts have decided, even if you're mentally defective, so-called, the government still cannot sterilize you. But in these cases, people who had physical birth defects were sterilized, so they wouldn't— pass that on to a future generation. Yeah, and what's fascinating about this is that this wasn't a right-wing thing or a left-wing thing. This was in the 1920s. It was originally brought in by the United Farmers of Alberta, who were a left-of-center progressive party, and then it was continued by the Social Credit, who were a not-left-of-center, not-progressive party, because there was this universal belief somehow that the state had the right to try and perfect humanity by stopping those who were deemed unfit from breeding. It's a really extraordinary part of our history. That and, one, and one that's not that old. Like, I mean, the, as you as you point out, Graham, like this, we don't have to look that far back into no, history to see yeah. to when this was I still mean, going on. 1972, when they were actually, they knew the law was being changed, the doctors kept on performing sterilizations up until the, the last, <coughs> pardon me, the last day. One thing I just wanted to say quickly, you mentioned the journal did a really good job, and you're right, the editorials. 1928, there was a journal editorial criticizing the law at the time. It wasn't like the entire society said, this is a good idea. Yeah. There's people back then, scientists and some politicians, and the editorial board at the Edmonton Journal that fought against the eugenics law in 1928, saying this is an experiment at best, um, which is, um, has no data to support it. This is not right. So people were fighting this in the very first day. The problem is it became part of the culture of Alberta in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. People just tended to forget about it. No one was talking about it, which is why <coughs> people who were sterilized, in fact, some didn't know they'd been sterilized. And Lani Muir was one of them. And I just, yeah. just want to say that, you know, what made her extraordinary was that she was a person who had had every possible bad thing thrown at her and she had the courage to take on the government and then to go on the radio to go on television to do interviews to do the media which is intimidating for anybody and particularly intimidating for somebody who doesn't have much formal education and who has had a very rough life 
And so I think when we remember her, we need to remember not just that she was a victim, but that she was really a heroine who got back her own agency and decided that she was going to stand up, not just for herself, but for everybody else who couldn't stand up for themselves. And that opened the door, her court case opened the door to them eventually getting compensation uh, of a form. So um, some got more than others, but uh, it was a, a little bit of <coughs> pardon me, justice given to those who had been treated so unjustly. It's it's just it's 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 astounding um, that that this was that this happened uh, in yeah. Alberta and that it happened so recently in, in 1972 when you were not alive but Graham and I were. <laughs> um, okay, well I think we're gonna have to leave it there for this week. But uh, of course, before we end the episode, we are going to get some good stuff from the gallery, which is when our panelists share their favorite read, watch, or listen of the week, usually but not always of a political nature. Paula, what do you have for us? I have a darkly funny piece from The Economist from the, their web edition, which has actually got tomorrow's date on it, called Doctored Strangelove, which is a look at recent uh, PR pictures uh, from North Korea of Kim Jong-un, and it talks about the way in which the North Korean government uses propaganda images to, uh, you know, try and create the impression that they are a serious nuclear superpower, uh, as is in many Economist pieces. I mean... North Korea is a terrible government, and nuclear war is not a funny thing. And yet The Economist somehow manages to write this piece in such a way that you cannot help but laugh. Oh, a little bit of dark humor is, is okay once in a while, Graham. Uh, going back to the Lalani Muir story, there's an archive <coughs> online. It's really interesting. It's called the Eugenics Archives, and it's eugenicsarchive.ca. Uh, and it's a project done by um, the federal government and universities looking at the eugenics program in Canada. And by Canada, we mean British Columbia and Alberta. And you look at that, of the 3,000 people forcibly sterilized in Canada, 200 came from BC, 2,800 came oh, wow. from Alberta. So this is an archive online giving you history. Uh, it links you to various things, including a documentary on the eugenics program and the effect on people in Alberta. Okay, thank you. That's a really uh, good share. Mine is um, not quite political, but picks up on a theme of the week, St. Patrick's Day. Um, it's called Sober Second Thoughts, Why It's Important to Remember That Not Everybody Drinks. Uh, and it's by Audra Williams in uh, the March 17th uh, edition of the National Post. Well, thanks very much. We'll be sure to post those links online. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Press Gallery. You can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and via TuneIn Radio. Subscribe, and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you. Thank you to Janet for joining us for the first time this week, as well as Paula and Graham, and of course, Sean Butts, our videographer. Of course, thank you all for listening as well. I'm Miriam Ibrahim, and we'll be back next week in the Press Gallery. 